Well, through this early fall season, I have been preaching on the theme of belonging through my current series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which I'm calling Building a Place to Belong. And part of what I have wanted to do in this series is to tell you what I expect must be a fairly unfamiliar story. That's why I've selected such wrong, such long scripture readings, in fact, because I want this story in all of its fullness and its complexity to take center stage so that we can ponder it together. You know, typically when we give a, a rough summary of ancient Israel's history as told in the Bible, we might begin with the Exodus or begin with Abraham or maybe with the conquest of the land or wherever we begin. And, and maybe we run on from there to, to Joshua and then to the judges and tell the great stories of, of King Saul and King David and King Solomon. And on from there into the divided kingdom when we hear from so many of those prophets right up until the point when Israel goes off into exile. And then, well, they came back home eventually, rebuilt the temple, and well, then Jesus. More or less, even though that was still several hundred years off. That's how we typically tell the story, but I think we've already begun to see that 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 part of the story that involves their return, which usually barely gets a full sentence in those kinds of summaries, is much richer and much, much more complicated than that. This was hard work. Mentally and emotionally taxing work. Work that was challenged and obstructed by every possible obstacle, both from within and from without. We've seen so far how even such a supposedly simple thing as building a temple that was already bought and paid for by the emperor of Persia called forth more in this weary and traumatized people than it turned out they had in the tank in the beginning. We saw last week how making enemies with those who were residing in the land already when they returned turned out to be counterproductive and introduced delays and complications and new antagonisms that only set back the work, but that would have longer-lasting impacts as well on their relations with their neighbors, even, even as these newly returning Judeans sought to build their own place to belong, their own place in the world. And that is just the beginning of the story, really. Up through last week's readings, we hadn't even gotten to the part of the story where Ezra and Nehemiah show up in the picture, and the books are named after them. Their wave of returning exiles didn't come back yet, and didn't come back until some 60 or 70 years after Cyrus let them go. And today, today we start to dig in a bit to Nehemiah's part of that story. And today what I want you to see at first is that even these many years later, the rebuilding of Jerusalem is still going on. Imagine that. Cyrus let the Israelites return home from exile around the year 520 B.C. And the Persian king mentioned in our reading today, Artaxerxes I, didn't start his rule until 465. So we're at least 
55 or 65 years later in time, and there's still building going on. Why does this take so long? Why is it so, so difficult to build a place simply to belong? Simply to be? Simply to call home and know that you're safe there? Someone said to me this week in an offhand conversation something to the effect that they had a fondness for this place that we were talking about, and they said, quote, unquote, because they didn't have to explain because I don't have to explain myself there. I don't have to explain myself there. It was a place where they felt they belonged, a place where they were deeply understood right from the get-go. Why is it so hard to build places like that? Nehemiah has a very unique and special place in the Restoration. He's not a prophet He's not a scribe or a priest like Ezra is. He's he, At first, Nehemiah is just a concerned citizen, you might say. He's the cupbearer of the Persian emperor, as we heard this morning, which means that he's basically a royal servant who just happens to have the emperor's ear every now and then. Later on in the story, he'll be appointed governor of his homeland, but for now, he just brings the emperor wine when he wants it. And what racks Nehemiah's heart is the news he receives that the city of Jerusalem is still in shambles. And in particular, that its walls haven't been rebuilt. Now, this is one of those places where the gap in time and culture between us and Nehemiah is likely to cause some misunderstanding. So let me explain a little bit. The wall to Nehemiah means safety. It means safety. The wall to Nehemiah signals the permanence of Israel's return from its exile. In the ancient Near East, in general, you needed a city with a wall nearby as a place to go to in case the neighbors attacked or wanted to take advantage. Not everyone lived in a city with a wall but just about everybody lived near a city with a wall, a place where they could go and seek protection in case of emergency. And here the Israelites are, newly backed into their homeland, and what Nehemiah is noticing is that they don't have a single walled city to their name. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's possible that we've gone all that way back home as a people only to be wiped off the face of the planet. And as we read in Nehemiah this morning, there are people who are of a mind to do that and who are threatening by their want to, uh, they're threatened by their wanting to build such a place. And so, Nehemiah, you might say, feels a deep calling to return and to build the wall because he's concerned about the vulnerability of his people and this project that they've undertaken to rebuild their place of belonging. Can you sympathize with Nehemiah here? I certainly can. Have you ever been afraid 
for your existence? Have you ever been afraid that your way of life may just disappear? Your people, your kindred, maybe. And even if you've never quite experienced that yourself, can you perhaps try to imagine what that must have felt like? Remember, this is not the Israel of that bygone age where they had armies and riches and cavalry. No, no, no. This is now a greatly reduced population, afraid for their lives and with no protection on the face of the earth. Can you imagine the urgency of Nehemiah's concern to get home and to build that wall? And the other part of what we read this morning was that it turned out that the surrounding neighbors were so antagonistic to them that they had to divide up the workforce so that half were standing on guard with their weapons while the other half worked. And that even the workers had to carry their swords at their sides. Now here, friends, lies a bit of a conundrum. And not just a conundrum for Jews living in 5th century Judea, but a broader human conundrum, I think. How do we go about building places to belong, building the kingdom, when the world that we find ourselves in would, would require us to divide our workforce in half? Divide our priorities in half to keep half an eye out for those dangers that threaten what we're trying to build. Can you really build and defend at the same time? Or better, can you, can you really keep your vision centered on the building when you're also having to do the defending? It's so easy to lose sight of that positive vision for what we're building when we're having to prepare at the very same time to protect it against the ones who would tear it down. They're entirely different attitudes of the heart, you might say. One, a vision of hope for the world that's about to be, for the new thing that's about to begin. The other, an anxiety fear, an anticipation of loss for the thing that could go away, and a hatred for the people that might take it away. How do we maintain focus on the hopeful, on what we're building when the threat wants to absorb all of our focus, all of our attention? That's a hard question, friends. And I don't have a simple answer that I can wrap up in a bow and send you out with in the space of a 15-minute sermon this morning. But I do think, I do think that it's an important question to ask from the pulpit, especially as these same dynamics continue to repeat themselves over and over again in our lives. That's partly why I decided to pair the reading that we're doing on Wednesday night, Redeeming Conflict, alongside this sermon series. This is hard and complicated work, building a place to belong. The laying of stones is the easy part. 
It's the knowing how to navigate hard realities as a faithful disciple. That's the hard part. I want to remind you that today, though, today we're taking part in this worldwide celebration that we call World Communion Sunday, which is a celebration, as I said earlier, across different Christian denominations, and that's meant to call our collective attention back to the hopeful vision of what we're building and of what is declared around the communion table. Listen closely to the words of that liturgy today. It's going to invite us all again to lift our hearts up. It's going to remind us again who's building whose place of belonging this is. It's going to narrate afresh in our hearing today how the story that we're a part of began as well as where it's heading. It's going to ask you to focus your heart's attention away from the swords and more towards the building that you too are called to partake in. And we're going to eat. We're going to drink together, and not just together here, but together as a worldwide church today, reminding us that we eat in anticipation of that day when we will all gather and feast around the table. And perhaps, friends, this is not so much at about arriving at global solutions. Maybe it's more about moment-by-moment -moment decisions. Decisions to keep our eyes focused on what we're building. Focused on what God is building. Focused on today's decision to be kingdom-minded. Focused on making the truly hard decision to not allow our hearts get absorbed in the fear and the hatred that comes with the defending, but rather with the hope and the promise that comes with the building. And all of God's people said, Amen.